Everyman Podcast. Everyman Podcast. Everyman can. What's up, Brother Jay? Big dog, Daryl Campbell. How you doing, bro? Another day in the everyman lifestyle. Oh, we're living it. We're living it. We one are, day at a time. We are living one it. One pod at a, at a time. One pod at a time, one day at a time. Sometimes one day becomes two, and we mm-hmm. keep rolling. You got to do what you yeah. got to do, my friend. That's it, man. That's it. Today, we have a guest who, uh, quite knowledgeable guest, mm-hmm. quite credentialed. I would say um, the most uh, certified person we've ever had. On the, on the Everman podcast. He holds more certifications than anyone I know. I think mm-hmm. that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, incredible young man named Dylan Dickstein, who is a prospective NASA astronaut. And, astronaut. Uh, yeah, get that. Space. Get that through your noggin. He's, uh, he's actually in a program. Um, he's an aerospace engineer. And he's uh, in a pool of candidates to be in the next NASA astronaut class next year in 2020. Absolutely. And he was kind enough to give us, uh, give the everyman and uh, our listeners here some of his time on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. And we kind of get into everything from um, what it's going to take to get back into outer space, get to get to the moon, get uh, get from the moon to Mars. Um, how he kind of made that decision that he wants to be an astronaut, how he started pulling all the pieces together, becoming a scuba diver, learning Russian, dipping his toe in the Mandarin pool, becoming an EMT, running marathons, becoming a private pilot. I mean, Mm -hmm. the amount of work that this guy has done by 25, uh, you know, working on his PhD at UCLA in aerospace engineering, it's just totally inspiring. Um, I feel, you know, I said to you, Daryl, I was worried I was going to feel like a, like a chimp talking mm. to such a brilliant young man. Um, <laughs> but he, he made us, uh, he, you know, he, he answered all of our, our questions and, uh, you know, some of the silly ones too. And we learned a few things about the future of, uh, you know, space commerce um, that I think you guys will find very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's, this is a guy that's worked for Elon Musk and, you know, Richard Branson at Virgin Galactic and, NASA at the Kennedy Space Center. I mean, this is a guy who's had at, at 25 years old. He's had some tremendous, tremendous uh, experience and, and knowledge, and we are very grateful for him uh, coming on and, and, and sharing that with us. And you know, he's five days from now. He's going on an expedition to Antarctica, folks. Yeah, dude. I mean, yep. he's he's going out looking for the ice wall. Uh, just kidding. The the Earth is round. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is a real deal, guys. Like, he's, uh, he was like talking to. Like Indiana Jones meets, you know, space explorer meets awesome bro. <laughs> I think I think the big the, the coolest thing about Dylan, um, especially given all of his experiences, is just you know how, and he'll say this a, a number of times on the podcast how how much of a realist he is, but he's he's so genuine and and he comes off um, in such a compelling way. To, to where like you feel like you know you could just sit down 
and just, you know, interact with him uh, at every level. You know what I mean? Like he's he's not a, you know, holier or better than or smarter than thou type. You guys know the the types I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. He's not that. He's 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 truly an everyman. He's he's truly someone that you can just hop into the cosmic canoe with like he has with us and just have, you know, a sit down chat about everything from, you know, in everything that's intergalactic to, you know, Antarctica and the Galapagos Islands, man. It's he's really an awesome guy, man. Awesome guy. And uh, we're going to be we're going to be keeping a tab on him. And he's uh, he's definitely going to be in our thoughts as he uh, as he journeys down to Antarctica. So uh, strap in and put on your explorer hat, you know, because everybody's got an explorer's hat. I've got my sheriff badge on and, mm-hmm. um, you know, enjoy the ride. Enjoy it. Today we have a very special interplanetary edition of the Everyman Podcast. Our guest today is currently working on his PhD in aerospace engineering at UCLA. He is a pilot, a scuba diver, a member of the Explorers Club, soon to be certified EMT. He's worked with United Launch Alliance, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX on several high-profile rocket launches. He just completed his first marathon. And he's getting ready to hop on a boat expedition to Antarctica. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce to you, making his Everyman podcast debut, prospective astronaut Dylan Dickstein. Thank you. Dylan, my man. Nice. Welcome to the Everyman podcast. How you doing, buddy? Doing doing great. Thank you. So, as I said there in the introduction, you are a man of many hats. You are uh, you are involved in everything, man. So, um, tell our listeners a little bit, you know, kind of in your own words, you know, who are you, where are you from, and what are you up to? Yeah, I mean, your your intro is fantastic. I I I, I do wear many hats, but most of the time, my hat is PhD researcher at UCLA, and uh, and sometimes that hat shifts. Uh, in the past summers, it's become employee of various rocket companies as you mentioned I, I used to work for richard branson at virgin galactic and i also worked for elon musk at spacex and previous to that i was uh, at united launch alliance and uh and i am a, a prospective astronaut that is my my goal in life right now and i and i am fortunate enough to be uh one of the front runners for this next uh, this next application period, which will look like it'll be a year or two years from now, and uh, we're gonna make this happen. It's incredible to have such a clear uh, vision of what you want to do, and uh, just to give a little background here. So I heard you um, on a on a podcast I really enjoy. It's called Riffin with Griffin, and uh, you were a guest on the show. And you were um, it's a comedy podcast, and it, it kind of took me by surprise. Um, but you know, I'm very interested in in space and science, and you know, Tesla technology. All that stuff is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> hearing you kind of tell your story about how you went from you know, building model rockets in your backyard pretty much as a little boy to working on SpaceX rockets. And I encourage everybody, if, if you want to hear, you know, Dylan's backstory and his origin, how he got from A to B, check out Riffin with Griffin. Uh, it's a great show and um, you can check that out on YouTube. But you, you talked a little bit about once you got to the Kennedy Space Center, you realized from talking to some astronauts like, oh, wait a minute, maybe what I want to do is actually go up there. Um, what was that realization like, and how did you kind of find yourself in that internship? Tell us just about that program there, and 
what was that conversation like that shifted your gears? Right. So one question I get asked a lot is, have you always wanted to be an astronaut? And the answer to most people's surprise is no. I pretty strong no. I it only it took until I was a few years into adulthood before I, I made that realization. I I was the six year old who always wanted to work on rockets as a designer, and then later I understood I, I enjoy the mathematics and the physics enough to be an analyst. But it it never really struck me that being the person inside the rocket was what I wanted to do until I actually got to meet them in person and work with them in person. And those individuals were Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley, who today, uh, they didn't know it at the time, but now they are selected to fly on Crew Dragon, the vehicle that I have actually worked on uh, when I was working for Elon. And so the guys, the two guys that inspired me to pursue this path are the same ones that I have parts on their vehicle. That's cool, man. <laughs> That's freaking cool, man. You know, man, <laughs> we, we have this thing here we, we talk about on the podcast. And I'm sure we'll touch on it a few times. It's this idea we call it the cosmic canoe. And and mm-hmm. uh, the cosmic canoe is, is me and Daryl are in this canoe together. We're on a shared journey. And every time we kind of put our paddle into the water to propel ourselves forward in this journey together, we're picking up a little bit of juice from everyone else that we're connected with. And it seems like, you know, the next person we we speak with on the Everyman podcast, we're connected to the other somehow. And um, it's just one of those things, like how I said, you know, I'm listening to the podcast in the car and I think, hey, you know what? I should reach out to this guy. And half an hour later, we're texting on Instagram. You know, it's. It's that idea about uh, paying things forward, kind of, and 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 going through life with a positive uh, intention. But absolutely, no, totally, and and part of that is also yes theory. I, I do believe that. Think many times over before you say no, and you'll be amazed by how much comes about that. And that cosmic canoe just keeps flowing. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. We talk about oh, it all yeah. the time. We say like you know it. Your boss asks you to do something outside of your scope of work or your general, you know, intentions, your ideas, and and hey, you know what? It might be difficult. Might have to drive six thousand miles, but you go and do it. You might you might find some uh, greater truths along the way. Um, I imagine that's the the kind of the whole thing in in your line too. With uh, the, it's probably a smaller field than you would think. I, I would guess, right? Oh, totally. No, absolutely. And you and you you got to say yes to these opportunities. When I, when I was in Denver, Colorado, working for United Launch Alliance, uh, this is the, today this is SpaceX's competitor. They are comprised of Lockheed Martin and Boeing. We're, we're familiar with Boeing for their planes, but they actually also have a rocket called Delta. And I worked on this vehicle uh, when I was an undergrad. I was uh, 19 years old. And I, uh, they, they liked me over there, and I, this was before I knew I wanted to go to, into graduate school at all. And I was thinking I might want to do my Ph.D. I wasn't positive at the time, and uh, but I did, I did good work at, at United Launch Alliance. And they turned around uh, after my uh, on my second week of work. Uh, they, they said, you know, usually we save this till a little bit later, but would you want to stay on? Uh, would you want to, uh, if we were to extend you an offer, what would you say? And the honest truth was like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing opportunity, but I, I don't, I don't know yet. I think I want, I think part of me wants to do graduate school and come the end of the summer, 
uh, when ultimately a piece of paper was pushed in front of me to say I'm coming back full time or I would be prefer an internship or I don't want to stay here at all, I, I realized that the I, I, by that point I realized I did want to go to graduate school and uh, and I took an internship instead. And they, they turned around and said probably the most life-changing thing to me uh, to that point. Uh, you know, we, uh, we just mandate that our interns don't go back to the same group they were in previously. Uh, otherwise, the company is open to you. Which group would you want to be in? And that flexibility <laughs> suddenly gave me about a week to figure out where I want to be in the country. And the, the, this company's all over the world. And I, I realized after one person said, I was like, what do I do? What, what, if, if, if you were pretty much given this opportunity to be in any department in the company, where would you go? And they said, most people in structural engineering, people who design the rockets, don't get to go to Florida to actually work on the launch pads and meet the astronauts. And so this, this guy uh, I convinced me. And I'm very glad he did, because the next year I was at Kennedy Space Center and working on the launch pads every week, uh, getting to see where the, the pads were relaunched to the moon, uh, everything. And, uh, and getting to work with these two guys, uh, Bob Enkin and Doug Hurley, really changed my life. Wow. That's awesome, man. You know, and we, we had somebody on a couple of weeks ago, Rachel Pricinger, who who had a similar story where it's like sometimes you never know. You just go into the uh, that interview process and they might throw a curveball and it's like, well, what do you want to do? You know, and, and you just make that big ask and, you know, you got you can't be afraid to ask, especially uh, for something like that. What's that? Uh, what's that like being where that history occurred? You know, like standing at the foot of that pad. And you know that that's where the final part of that journey of deciding we're going to go to the moon and all of the manpower and money and science that went into it. And you're standing there kind of just, you know, one, one dude. What's that like? It, it definitely uh, makes it easier to come into work. That's for sure. You, you get there at 8 a.m. You're like, well, this is not too bad. Because uh, uh, from my from my office, I, there was a window not too far away, and I could look outside and see, yeah, this, this is where this all began. And uh, and then if you're asked to go later into the day, you need a checkup on Launchpad 39 uh, or Launchpad 41. And by the way, 40A and B is where we launched to the moon. So it's like, okay, so I need to pass by. Uh, on, in the morning, I'm passing by you know the Launchpad I'm working on. And then if in the afternoon, I'll pass the ones that took us to the moon. This, this makes your your work uh, much more enjoyable and inspiring. And uh, it, the idea of someone slacking off is almost non-existent because everyone's just so amazed by where they get to work. So you're kind of energized by the institution, if you will. Yeah, and, and, and but even take away the history. It's gorgeous. You're, you're next to the coast. In Florida, uh, you have private beaches because no one can get to Kennedy Space Center besides you and other space employees. And so there's fishing spots all around the coast that's just unbelievable. And got to pick, uh, catch and release stingrays, massive fish. The other managers and I would go fishing, uh, take their boat off the shore. Uh, and, and then on top of that, you have the, like every launch pad up the coast is just super historical. What's kind of cool is 
the number I mentioned, 40 A and B, is what took us to the moon, um, and, and 39 as well. Uh, these these numbers started with one uh, back in the 50s. These were actually missiles that went off for uh, companies like Lockheed Martin uh, 60, 70 years ago, and they just kept going up the coast. One, two, three, uh, and finally. Uh, by the something in the teens, we were actually going to space. And then look at us today. Now we're in the 40s. Nice, man. Wow. So that's how they, that's, it's related to how, what the need was at the time. They just, I guess they don't just build like 50 uh, launch pads and then use them as you go. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then today, uh, because now at 41, we've almost exhausted the coastline. What's happening is, some of the pads that were used back in the 60s and 70s are getting retrofitted to be for the next missions to the moon, uh, back to the International Space Station, and then eventually to Mars. You will see these pads, like namely like 21, that might take us to Mars for the first time. Who knows? Wow. Now, cool. is that, I guess, that plays into why the like, company like SpaceX has such a big presence in Texas? Uh, that uh, so. I mean, that, besides the tax incentives, I mean that's a whole other thing. I know there's, they were kind of made a deal to come there, but as far as having space to, you know, launch rockets, some of that actually just comes down to the scale. The actual scale of their rockets are on an, uh, at least for the ones proposed for Mars, are on an order that we've never seen before. They. Uh, the Saturn V, which took us to the moon, is a huge rocket. But by comparison, uh, Starship, uh, which uh, may be the front runner right now to take us to Mars, is quite a bit bigger. And so you have uh, you, you have concerns with uh, noise, and uh, if there's some sort of a catastrophe, this could be uh, monumental if you're around other historical sites. Uh-huh. And so there was a push to go somewhere completely different and very remote, and namely Brownsville, Texas. Wow, because they're they're kind of, you know, I, I'm sure if you've probably seen it, First Man. If if you know our listeners, um, check out the First Man. It's a story. It's the film about kind of the you know trip to the moon initially, and and they show a lot of. There's a really cool scene in there about being a test pilot, and how those guys early on were just like, they were for lack of a better term, they were just badass they were crazy crazy mm-hmm. crazy cutting edge like alpha male crazy scientists slash adrenaline junkies that were pushing it to the limit and i think there's something interesting about um like y- y- you want to think that yeah we're sending up all these super well disciplined thoughtful taught instructed people up into space but you need people that want to push that line right yeah, I mean, you you astronauts in general uh, are jack of all trades. They you don't have much support there. You have to be self sufficient. Uh, so you need someone who is a pilot, uh, has a medical background, is a scientist, is a researcher. All these things built into one person. But at the same time, this person needs to be athletic. This person needs to be able to speak with. Uh, people from other parts of the world uh, through interviews or through actual collaborations. And this person needs to be uh, pretty well versed in social media as well. Uh, but then, you know, going back to what you said, this person, this person also needs to be a little bit of a, 
a little bit uh, unrocked by. Right. Uh, I don't know what the. I don't want to say a screw loose, <laughs> but like, the, you're not. You know what I mean? This is not the safest thing. You know, so you know you're taking a risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, the the fortune of it though is it's there's not for people who are really training to be astronauts here on earth people who like myself will apply to be astronauts and are taking it very seriously and have a chance these same people understand that the activities that we're doing before we even apply are also rather risky uh but it's this uh it's this understood risk that is really what's important the uh the calculated risk not just going ahead and and jumping off a building uh, 40 feet up into water just because but learning how to fly because it can help you in emergency situation return a vehicle back to earth. Uh, these are, you know, you don't, you don't just get your skydiving license, even though sometimes that could be valuable to someone. There are other things someone can be doing that are also risky, but are all, but at the same time are benefiting that person's application and making them prepared for life uh, as a astronaut candidate, as opposed to just uh, a thrill seeker. Now, when you when you uh, kind of got that advice, and you you know you're saying you get your mentors that kind of said, okay, this is what you should do if you want to take it to, if you really want to take it to the next level, is there was there like a checklist presented to you informally that was like, okay, you should be a scuba diver, a pilot, an EMT, Russian, Mandarin, you know what I mean, like, or did you kind of are you kind of just feeling the 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 pulse of of the, the the climate with, you know, as it relates to science in the whole field, and you're like, okay, well. Like I get the scuba, I get the scuba diving thing because I understand zero gravity and the oxygen and working in a restrictive environment. Like it's the closest thing you get to space. Um, but you know, I didn't think about the EMT and and all the multiple languages and and all that. So how how did you kind of put that list together of like, all right, here's what I got to do by the time I'm thirty. Right. So some of some of the items on the list are. To me, they uh, presented themselves because of my undergraduate study in aerospace engineering. It became clear through just the classes I was taking what was valued in our astronauts. Uh, So the idea of flying seemed, uh, to me, it was just, okay, I I understand pilots have a flying background. That's something that still exists today. Uh, We have... Uh, multiple languages spoken on the International Space Station, namely English, Russian, Chinese. Uh, it seems valuable for everyone to be able to speak all three of these languages ideally, even if English is the uh, um, right now the uh, business la- international language. Uh, things that were a little bit more obscure to me were scuba diving. This I w- this wasn't as obvious. It once I understood though how astronauts train, and this this is something I understood through. Uh, looking more into what NASA values in their astronaut selections. And in fact, the, uh, there's a mock-up of the International Space Station in NASA Houston uh, at Johnson where the uh, whole ISS is submerged underwater. And sure enough, the astronauts train uh, in scuba. Uh, and so it, it, at that point, it becomes uh, clear that scuba diving is valued. If, if someone's not a good scuba diver, they're not going to be a good fit uh, to be an astronaut. Uh, and then even more obscure were, as you mentioned, the EMT. This this I did not figure out on my own. Uh, uh, there is an astronaut named, uh, a retired astronaut named uh, John Gedmark, 
who's a mentor of mine. And uh, I was listening through the things I was working on. This was a couple of years ago. And, and he said, no, these are all fantastic. The only other thing I would add is some sort of medical experience. And, uh, and we were talking through like, uh, okay, well, some people are uh, volunteer firemen. Uh, some people uh, go as far as to actually get a MD uh, to actually become a doctor. That's not practical for most people. Uh, but then uh, I was like, okay, well, I, I'm first aid certified, AD certified. Uh, what's the next step there? And uh, and that's where together we realized that EMT, uh, emergency medical technician license or certificate is uh, is very valuable. And uh, and sure enough, I found other examples of uh, prospective astronauts getting their EMT and uh, and NASA agreeing with that decision. Well, um, and, and Daryl, I guess it's kind of like NASA and the NFL. Like they don't want to bring you to the NFL and then teach you how to tie your shoes. Like you should probably know how to tie your cleats up before you get there. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think it uh, kind of extends itself a little bit towards like just college. If we just take that for, for example, like you don't go to college. Like when I got to Notre Dame, it's the, the, if, if you're taking like physics three or calculus or, differential equations whatever it is like nobody's gonna when you get there say hey this is how you do those things no you should already know that if you want to be like a computer science engineer or, or take any type take take any of those classes uh that require um that background so it's kind of like the first check off the list all right you you can be able to do this if you haven't done it then your advisor is going to be like hey maybe try a different major you know what i mean <laughs> so um and, and 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 also with respect to playing sports well, I mean, if you want to be a defensive lineman in the NFL and you've never put your hand on the ground, they're going to probably suggest that you try a different position. So, I mean, it just it all makes sense to me. Totally. Yeah, yeah no, it, I, I love the, the analogy of, uh, of the, the college student in the career fair line. A lot of people will have that experience where there's some company that you like and they're at your university and, uh, and here you're in this line of 100 people uh, and you get to the front of that line and they start asking you questions. Uh, what have you done in this area before? Uh, what's your experience in this? And if the person turns around and says, oh, actually, I've, I've never worked in this area. This is all new to me. You know, that ultimately that, that HR uh, individual standing in front of them is not going to be very impressed. That's, that's going to be a high-risk person. That person may, on the other hand, be the best person for the job but in that moment they were too risky to be able to actually be given an interview whereas if that person says all the, the 10 things that that job involves that person becomes very low risk they they have shown that they know already all those things and so people forget that even for the most obscure of jo- and and difficult of jobs to obtain there's always ways to prepare for that job interview and uh, and that doesn't stop with astronaut. Uh, if you even if you can't go to space in practice uh, as an you know just as a prospective astronaut, you can do plenty of things that that help you train like an astronaut before you even get into that position. And I I'm, yeah, and I imagine other students would would say the same thing about an NFL football player. Like you you can I, I imagine for you, it it doesn't seem crazy to just 
dedicate your life to football if you want to be a professional football player. That, that seems clear. It's like, yeah, that's pretty yeah. normal. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but just to your point, Dylan, you, you have to, you know, as it were, you have to put as many different um, – for you to be successful, you have to have a lot of uh, toolage on that tool belt. You know what I mean? That's, that's pretty much what it is. Well, what, you know, one of the things, Dylan, that I, that I kind of uh, identify in you is, you know, I, I always do my research when we have guests on the show and digging through your social media and, and watching your interviews. And I, I watched a video you did for uh, your PhD program. And mm-hmm. you said uh, something along the lines of, you know, it's, it's more like it's like being, you know, running your own small business. And I see what you're doing where you want to be, you, you know what you want to do. And you've kind of taken the bull by the horns in a modern social media driven world. And you're putting yourself out there while also having all of the credentials to back it up. And you're, and you're kind of steering your own path to where you want to go. And I just, I really admire that. And especially when it comes to the way you're able to communicate it, because like you said, you said something interesting, whereas, you know, you, you see these people like Neil Tyson or Mark Kelly um, who become mainstream figures to to your casual everyday American, you know, that's maybe not interested in in space outside of what they see, you know, on the Daily Show or whatever. And they have to be able to communicate why this stuff is important to the world so that we can continue to fund it and participate in it and it's like on one hand you have you know what a lot of people understand about space is what they see in movies and you know if you you go you look at something like space camp i don't know if you've ever seen that where mm-hmm. a bunch right. of kids, i love that i love that movie as a kid i was like oh i gotta go to space camp i might end up in space this is great they've got they've got this little butler robot and everything and so it'll be perfect for me and you know like super crazy dumb stuff and then you know of course the the plot of every sci-fi horror movie the reason everybody dies is because there's only the medical doctor and then the pilot and then the marine guy and you know in real in real practice that's kind of avoided by having everybody cross trained and uh, you know prepared for any situation. Totally, and in in half the hobbies or curriculars I'm working on right now, the training is what to do in emergency situations. I, I'm nearing the end of my pilot training right now. I'm all, almost a private pilot. I'll probably be one either by the end of this year or early 2020. And you spend the the first couple months of your training is, all right, you've lost your uh, engine. What, what next? And when you first start with this training, the, the natural response is to go, well, you know, you you kind of resort to whatever you can find. Oh, there, here's this street that looks nice to land on. Here, maybe I'm close to the beach. Maybe I'll try to land on the sand. It becomes this, like, a last-ditch effort. And then the more you work at it, the more you are becoming vigilant of what is a reasonable landing spot, other ways to avoid getting in the situation, uh, things you can do to reduce your chances of a negative outcome, and it actually becomes, you, you start to feel pretty confident uh, that even in these emergency situations, even if the situation is bad, at least you're prepared. And the ability to 
uh, make a logical decision over one that is emotionally based is a major difference. Even if ultimately those decisions end up being the same exact thing, landing on this strip of road and then laying on this strip of road, if you're doing those with a level head or an emotional response, you're going to have a completely different ending to that conclusion. And uh, and the same is is going for the scuba diving. I I, I got scuba dive certified over the summer in uh, in La Jolla in near San Diego, California, and uh, and over half of the training is, all right, you've lost your scuba tank, now what? Uh, and turns out there are hundreds of of ways to get out of the situation alive, and all you have to do is. Uh, use your logic, stay calm, and uh, and make a reasonable decision, not one on emotion. Um, and, and it's amazing how it extends to almost anything that is risk uh, prone. Uh, but uh, but having these in your toolbox are it, it applies to almost anything. Uh, and I I'm starting to see that too with social media. Uh, you know you you want to. <laughs> You want to be risk tolerant. I feel like in the world, it's 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 a waste of time to be, uh, to be scared, to uh, to attempt something, but uh, but you do have to be aware of what some of those emergency situations would be like: getting hacked, uh, or uh, or making a post that uh, can get you in trouble. But you have to think through everything as to uh, okay, if I was in that situation, how would I how would I go about this? And then there, certainly there are better ways than others. You know, I've I've experienced a bit of that as well with you know with the the podcast because you know people will say what they're going to say, and you can't make everybody happy. You know, especially when you're interviewing somebody's favorite you know musician or favorite athlete or whatever it is, and some so you may have missed something, and uh, it's hard to not. You know, like, it's like, I'm not going to take this personal. I'm not going to take this personal. And then you're like, God, like, why? <laughs> you know, like 20 minutes later. So I can imagine, like, you know, especially because uh, there's ego and everything. So I, I would assume in the uh, aerospace engineering world, there's a lot of like, uh, well, my, you know, my gasket design is better than yours or, you know, whatever. Uh, you get any of that in there? Oh, man. Uh, th- yeah, that's a, that's a funny part of the business. Uh, because you, uh, whenever you're making an engineering decision, it there needs to be some sort of checks check and balances, because uh, it's not it, it's not unco- it's not unheard of to uh, to have a manager make a decision on the uh, uh, you know that, that trumps the whole team, even if uh, it's not the right engineering decision. And uh, I, I've been fortunate, at least for the companies that I've worked for. There, there have been those checks and balances that even if someone is at a, a higher pay scale, uh, generally engineering has won out. I've never been part of a uh, engineering decision where I felt uh, usurped, uh, but not to say it doesn't exist. Certainly, certainly it has, uh, and that's, that's something that uh, again extends well beyond engineering. But but definitely, uh, uh, logic needs to win out over uh, over pay scales. Yeah, I mean that's the human element. Anytime you get people involved and there's money on the line, and especially things there's you know there's patents and there's you know off-label uses for a design that might uh, spark somebody's interest. I could see the 
you know, the, the heat of the moment that could be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm curious, uh, uh, Daryl, did you experience that at all uh, in the NFL where a pay scale uh, difference would uh, would trump the decision making over maybe the right decision? Oh man, ah, jeez. Um, <laughs> well, I think I think everything. Um, it's in, in, in Justin, Justin and I were kind of t- texting about this earlier, just about uh, the NCAA's um, deal with respect to uh, allowing players to get right. paid with their likeness and and whatnot. And it, and it really it really just burdened me up because the the purest form of the game, in my honest opinion, was when I was in college when um, money wasn't involved. Um, the reward, you know, to me especially coming out of Chicago and, you know, being the first of my, my family to go on to college and graduate and, uh, you know, subsequently, you know, go to grad school and all of that was the education. That was the most important thing um, because that th- that would, would in it, in essence, give you all the tools that you needed to succeed and, you know, just being a, being, a, you know, a reputable portion of society. Like, just it would be awesome. I didn't think that we'd ever get to the point to where somebody would say, hey, you know, I want to get paid in any capacity, whether it's for name or likeness and whatnot, um, because it, it strips down um, th- that reward of education, everything that you've worked so hard for in high school to get to, co- to, to, get to college. Um, it, it strips it all down to um, uh, something of a dollar amount. And in the pros, whether, whether teams want to be <laughs> – PC, as they call it, um, it's it's all about um, money. It's all about what have you done for me lately. It's all about uh, performance. It's not about the game. And 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 sadly, um, and and I'm just being honest with it. It's 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 it really comes down to hey, how many sacks has this defensive lineman given us over mm-hmm. this past over the course of this season? Oh, eight. Well, we have another one who's given us twelve. We right. might want to think about retooling our roster. Oh, guess guess what? Also, he's he's thirty years old, where this other guy is twenty something years old, and you know what? He's costing us more, much more money as opposed to this younger one who's costing us less. Um, so it's the opposite in the NFL. It's the other way around. Well, it's 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 still it's still boiled down to to money though. Money is. Uh, I put it to you like this: if if we have a defensive end or we have a wide receiver or, or what have you come to a team and they're going to allocate this dollar amount, but their performance is here versus someone else's who's, who is younger and, you know, they cost this much, then they're going to go, hey, eh, here's the service. How can he really help us? Uh, does he really have, you know, the experience that's needed for this particular front, for this particular offense? And then they kind of weigh the pros and cons based upon the dollar amount of how and 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 it's and it's years too that that's involved with that. It's it can get a little bit sticky, but it's it all revolves around money. Whereas in college, money doesn't have any way, shape, form, or fashion. It doesn't really compute. It's it's all about this kid, blue blue chip kid. We we went to talk to his parents. We went to talk to you know uh, his teachers. Uh, is he you know? Um, is he a good kid? Um, does he have the grades? If he checks the boxes in all those areas, having having nothing to do with money, well, we bring him on. Right, and my uh, my first year of grad school at UCLA, my my roommate, his name is Cody McDavis. 
and the guy is now a lawyer for a top law firm, uh, Morrison Forster, and he was published in the New York Times uh, back when this was uh, evolving, and he is he he's agrees completely with you, Daryl, uh, that it it shouldn't be the way it is now. It, it, it this should yeah this should strictly be for the pros, and uh, absolutely it's, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the guy Cody has now been on Fox News, CNN, talking all about this. Uh, he, he was a Div, Div One uh, basketball athlete back in the, nice. back in college. Well, I think yeah. the thing that is unprecedented that they've never had to deal with is this idea of the quote unquote influencer or the you know the YouTuber or whatever, where anyone else who's got that kind of national exposure is able to harness it, monetize it, put it out with their face on it and then profit off of it but these guys aren't able to but the difference is that's a different system and they're getting something else you know but nowadays people don't want that everybody wants everything so i think the problem is you've got these young kids who are looking around like wait a minute i've got 150,000 followers on twitter but i can't make a patreon so i can <laughs> so i can pay for my beer this weekend like what what the fuck like i i i, t I totally get it and you know, unfortunately, um, I mean, we're, we'll see what happens with it. But, uh, yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Um, but, you know, on, kind of on that subject of money and, you know, especially with science, that's always been intertwined. And, and you need, uh, you know, like the, 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 the Saturn V astronauts, you know, those guys in the Apollo missions, they couldn't really insure them. So they gave them Corvettes and access to fighter jets. And, you know what I mean? Because those guys were, again, just balling out of control. And, you know, like, how, what, what do you do with these stallions? Well, let's give them some Corvettes and let them run. And, you know, it's the same reason why I heard, you know, Elon Musk, your, your former boss, dude, saying on, on Joe Rogan, like, I needed to make something sexy that people would go out and spend big money on to get their attention so that it'll trickle down to you can go get a Hyundai, you know, Kona for $35,000 that's electric. Like, the 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 prius wasn't cutting it you know so like it's the same thing with starship right like there's a reason why it looks the way it does and it takes off vertically and it, it can land back down because people look at that and they go wow that's from science fiction that's from a comic book that i read when i was a little boy what's going on over here and then all of a sudden they're invested in in pushing these ideas forward Definitely, and it's uh, in this industry of aerospace. I, I, it's it's nice to be in an industry where when someone when you tell someone I am an aerospace engineer, the responses are generally positive, right? Like, uh, and there's there's phrases based upon this kind of field. Like, uh, uh, it's not rocket science. But then the rocket mm. scientist goes ahead and says, well, not, it's not brain surgery. And then the brain surgeon says, well, it's not rocket science. And so it just continues yep, on like yep. this. Uh, but, it's uh, not Chinese math, right? Yeah, that's the next one. Right, and then, then, it, then it all comes to a halt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, rockets are inherently sexy, but there are ways of making them cooler. And... Uh, and part of that is uh, is understanding what people want and uh, and pushing those boundaries uh, because people also don't necessarily know what they want. They just want new. Yes. And so when you're able to provide them something they've never seen before, even if it's the most boring thing fundamentally, this is not. This is very exciting. But it it 
it's uh, it's new and uh, and people want to see that. People want to see those boundaries pushed. We're even seeing now. Uh, I'm not sure if you're even aware. We've landed the first stage with Falcon. That's that's mm-hmm. that's happened many times. But uh, now there are efforts to land the fairing. That's the the nose cone of these rockets. Uh, the last few uh, rocket launches through SpaceX have actually made attempts uh, to catch the fairing. These are two halves of the nose cone. They they're little shells where the satellite sits inside. And uh, believe it or not, there's a boat. A fishing boat with a big net uh, down on the in the water, and as this uh, fairing comes down under parachute, uh, it's uh, it's being steered uh, and uh, and directed to try to land back on this boat with a fishing net, and uh, it's a very bizarre sight, and it's uh, not as sexy as the first stage because there's no fire, but uh, but it's very cool and it's very it's new. And so uh, once this becomes better publicized, uh, the, the whole country will be like, yeah, you know, we always have landed fairings. When in reality, this is something as of 2019. Um, yeah, it's just being able to uh, go beyond what has happened before and not be too afraid to try. Well, it's like when I heard <laughs> when they were going to they're going to land these these rockets on a barge in the middle of the ocean. I was like, what the what? What practical you you know like I you know I'm my little musician brain over here I'm thinking like what what the hell is that all about why blah 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 and the next thing you know like the first one doesn't work and then they have a problem here and then it's like oh oh wait yep they got it and then it's like yeah we can we can uh, we can land a rocket anywhere now and it's like if you can figure out the problems of landing something you know on water I guess you can it like you said just kind of not being not being afraid to push the limits. Right, and uh, and the reason for the water landing, by the way, was safety. Actually, uh, if you if you tried to land on land or right away, you would have had those first seven landings that failed fail on concrete next to other landing pads. It essentially, was a safety issue, hmm. uh, and so it made more sense to land them out to sea, about four hundred miles. And uh, it, and even better, the drone ship is autonomous. There's no humans on it, and so uh, for those that were a failure, at that point, you just you just need to repair the drone ship. The rest of it is fine. There's no there's no uh, risk to humans. Um, but once that was secured and we the the algorithm was closed where they could land the rockets uh, with consistency, then that's why that's why you started seeing the land landings. So that's not really a that's not really a plan for the future. It's just that was just. Well, you're saying safety. Right. If they could land on land every time, they would because it's easier. It's already there. It's uh, it's 10 miles from the starting point uh, as opposed to 410. Damn. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's, why you, that's why we have guys <laughs> like you on, man. I can explain the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So so now one last question about these these kind of ancillary uh, hobbies. What's the, been the most difficult uh, task that you've gotten involved in for for you preparing to be an astronaut out of that that little roster there? I d- difficulty wise, I that's a fascinating, fantastic question. I think I feel like scuba diving might be the most difficult. Uh, it's it's very foreign. 
the idea of uh, of learning a new language is something we typically people typically experience in high school. I learned Spanish in high school and I took it seriously to where I can now speak Spanish. And so when I went ahead and learned Russian, uh, it, it wasn't too unfamiliar to me. I, I was able to pick that up all right. Now I can speak Russian. Um, flying also is something that we're not too dis- we're not too uncomfortable with as as uh, as modern humans because we drive cars. We were familiar with what it's like to get into a new vehicle, learn how to get your license. We do it at 16 years old, and uh, and now we can do it safely. Uh, just add a third dimension, now you can fly. Yes, it, it's more risky, of course, because you're adding elevation to it, but flying is not too, too different than driving a car. It's more complicated and uh, a little bit more dangerous, but it, we've done something like this before. Scuba is completely new. You, you know, for those of us who have never gone scuba diving, the best thing some people have experienced is snorkeling. You go into the water with a little tube and a mask, and uh, now you can look down at the water and uh, see some fish. This is still a large way off from scuba diving. Scuba, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. You are now this self-sufficient breathing machine underwater. And uh, and have either of you guys tried scuba? By the way, no, I have no, I haven't. I don't even think they can make oxygen tanks big enough for Daryl. Oh. <laughs> no way, <laughs> dude. Man. They'd have to get him in one of those. Old timey, you know, like those old timey uh, metal suits. They'd probably have to get yeah. one of those for him. Heaters together and put it on my back <laughs> to sink you down there, man. It's crazy. Uh, uh-uh. uh, not gonna happen. <laughs> You're helping with my point, which I appreciate. Like scuba is something you just don't experience in yeah. your daily lives, unless, of course, you sign up for a scuba diving adventure or certification. And uh, it's not that it's. Uh, not that we can't do it. I mean, it, scuba is uh, is popular because it we figured out how to breathe underwater, which is so cool. You know, you uh, you even just like drink a cup of tea, and if you're drinking for too long, you're gonna put, you're gonna need to like you know take your head out of this cup of of tea. Uh, but the ability to put your head and your whole body underneath water for an hour at a time yeah. and feel comfortable is mind blowing to me. It, that still amazes me uh, that we can do this and that you can go to, on a vacation to the Caribbean and uh, and hire this guy to help you do this. You've never met this person before, but now with the help of this little apparatus, you can breathe underwater for an hour. And uh, uh, in the I got certified with this over uh, a few days uh, over the summer, and I remember just the first breath underwater, uh, just. I, it was amazing to me. I I loved the experience uh, where you breathe normally. You know, normally we don't think about our breathing, but maybe if you have a cold, if you're sick, then you start to think about your breathing, especially when you're sleeping or when you're when you're going to bed. Uh, you're like, okay, now I have to breathe through my mouth. Oh, great. Now I can't breathe through my nose. Yeah. Maybe then you start thinking about your breathing. I'm never right. going to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm just yeah. Fall asleep to this. Uh, but otherwise, we don't think about it. Uh, but of course, when you're starting to scuba dive, you have to, and uh, and you're very ca- cautious because you, you don't want to take in a, a mouthful of water. No. And uh, and the ability to take that first breath because your instructor tells you so, and you're like, trust me, it'll work. You'll have air. 
and you do it and it does work. You have air and you, and you look around, you can see nothing but water around you and you know, then you fish and then you have crabs and you have all these cool things that are like, Oh my gosh, I'm just entering their world and I feel fine. Yeah. And it's like everything in your, your, biological being is telling you not to open your mouth do you like you can't yep. do that you got to override yep. biology and you know millions of years of evolution of not breathing in water to to do that that's a that's a pretty pretty wild trip yeah so yeah I, I, I just like I, I would definitely encourage both you guys and, and everyone listening to try scuba diving if you haven't already it is i would definitely amazing. i'd definitely give it a try we'll, we'll have to get a get a, a 5x trip a couple yeah. of five XL <laughs> scuba suits stitched together for my man over here. Um, so, so switching gears here, man. So, so we've talked about you. You, you know, you want to be an astronaut now. You're going through through all the preparation. The thing that really caught my attention about you, bro, is uh, you want to go to Mars. It's you're not just. You, this is what ki- it kind of relates to me. You're not just happy with going to space. You have to go to Mars and be a part of that like you're you're picking the most um the furthest point the most difficult thing um and you're setting yourself on it so my question to you is one why mars and what is the plan here what's the explain to our listeners where we are as a country uh space program you know as as humans where are we in relation to getting dylan dickstein to Mars. Uh, you're, you hit the nail on the head. That That is goal number one, to be the first person on Mars. Uh, it The whole reason SpaceX exists is to get people to Mars. And at some point, there has to be a first person. Uh, that first person, some people have, have dreamt about it being uh, just an average Joe, uh, but reality is the first people to try any of these missions will be someone who's trained, uh, namely a NASA astronaut. So as much as uh, SpaceX is independent mostly in how they operate, they still need the assistance of NASA uh, often. And uh, and when it comes time to have those first missions to Mars, uh, they will likely, very likely, hire externally uh, for those uh for those test specimens, uh, and that'll be uh, NASA astronauts uh, and and seasoned ones at that, not just new astronauts. And uh, as I've, as you probably have heard me discuss on other on other platforms, what if, if we take the uh, prediction of 2034, 2035 as true, what ends up happening is is the people in their mid twenties that uh, have the highest chance of being those first people to Mars. I'm 25 years old. And so I, I'm fortunate that I not only have this desire and the, uh, and the faculties and the background and interest and passion to, to make this happen, I also happen to have one thing that you can't change uh, working for me as well. I'm the right age. And uh, I didn't pick that, obviously, but it, it's something that uh, anyone in my shoes would, would be very happy about. It's it, essentially the timing is working out nicely to where there's this path that I have, uh, have stayed on now for the last few years with, uh, with urgency. And if, uh, if essentially 
I, I am chosen uh, to be a NASA astronaut, then the chances of, uh, of me being that first person on Mars are substantial. Uh, and they, uh, NASA, they will, uh, will want someone who has, uh, the number, right number of years of training. And, uh, and then if, uh, if someone like myself is, is, uh, is selected next year or the next round four years after that, either one of those time frames work out well for about 10 years of training and, uh, and then selection for, uh, for that first trip to Mars. Wow. So now, are there a lot of people that you're aware of that are like you that say, you know what, I'm going to be the first one to Mars? Or is this something that you think they're going to need somebody to volunteer for? They definitely don't need volunteers. Uh, I can tell you that right now. There are, there are others like me. Um, for my job prospects, I'm fortunate to know that there aren't very many. Uh, like me, in, in fact, uh, um, there are, uh, there's a reason why I'm I'm a front runner in that. Uh, so I, I all right I'm I'm in this industry and I am aware of my competition. I can only think of two people that I really view as competition, and uh, and the at this stage it's early enough to where any of this competition should be viewed as collaboration. These are these are individuals that we should. Uh, understand uh, what they're doing to uh, try to make the, this happen uh, and and not try to push each other out of the way. This is not the time for that. But uh, but these couple other, other individuals who I, I won't name, but uh, they are doing very similar things. Uh, the these, these handful of items that I'm working on or almost finished with or, or have finished, uh, it, it's no it's no secret sauce. The, these are all things that NASA astronauts have been doing for the last few years, and these are the best things we can do on Earth uh, to train for uh, for that role. Um, and these other individuals are my age. Uh, I've uh, I've met them through uh, through various conferences and uh, and previous employments. Uh, but uh, but the, but you know think about that. I, I, I said I'm saying there are two individuals I'm aware of. Uh, Ultimately, NASA ends up selecting about twelve people every uh, every round, and uh, and so that's also why I mentioned that you shouldn't view anyone in in my position should not view them as competition uh, to be pushed out of the way, but to be collaborated with, because, gosh, maybe these two other people I know will be my crew. Uh, will be uh, all three of us will help each other get to Mars. That's interesting. Yeah. So you're balancing a competitive edge a little bit but also thinking about you know leadership and uh teamwork it's this is so fascinating because uh, again to bring back this idea of like you're asking people to strap themselves on top of the most powerful controlled explosion we have send you nine months into outer space and and so so you need people that are you know, I get, like I said, up there, hot, running hot, but also trained and willing to work together. Like there's, there's a reason why they say like, this is the right, the right stuff, the best of the best, like, because you can't, you know, I, I, in my, in my job, I was observing at a job site, a construction site recently. And, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, construction and safety things, you can't get all hot and yelling and arguing and fighting because there's safety. Somebody could, 
a box could fall on some dude's pinky and lose a hand or whatever happens. But the stakes are even higher when you're when you're like this, you know, like where every breath is calculated and every everything is is thought out ahead of time. You can't really have that. Yeah, exactly. And and I I, I am a competitive person. I, I do believe in competition, but but man, collaboration wins out uh, much more than competition does. Just the ability to to realize who is who needs to be your friend, and uh, and yeah, especially in these in these. Uh, life or death situations you really want to make sure that that other crew those crew members have your back absolutely now when you think about um the, the prospect of being the first person on mars do you do you envision is it something you work on where you envision taking those first steps I, okay so there uh where this uh, journey, where this previous to Eric Griffin, I, I was on Impulsive uh, with Logan Paul, and uh, shout out and, to Logan Paul. <laughs> yeah, shout out there. I, <laughs> I, and and that really came to be because I'm uh, I become friends with uh, Spencer Taylor, one of the other uh, co-hosts on the show, and uh, and he and I have done. Uh, It'll be released uh, in the next couple of months, but there's a, a video that he and I uh, have created where we have a uh, we met up with a guy in Las Vegas who owns a, a, sp- a spacesuit, real spacesuit, and, uh, and we filmed for the whole day different locations what it would be like for that first those first steps, and uh, and it was an interesting experience for me because on one hand I'm being something of an actor in the moment for Spencer. You know, there's a video camera in front of me very clearly. We have drones flying overhead filming me, uh, and I'm climbing in Vegas, right? Like I can breathe. There's there's I'm not attached to any pressurized system here. Um, but there there were there were a couple moments, uh, especially in the evening when the sun was setting and it was getting a little bit darker, and uh, uh, Spencer had me just walk for about a quarter mile, uh, just in one direction, a drone was going to film me. And I was just in my own head. I wasn't talking to anyone. I was just, uh, I was just making a point to walk, uh, on this plane in, in Las Vegas, on this, in this desert. And, uh, and there, there was a period there that was really beautiful for me. I, I was, I'm not one to, I'm not a very sensitive guy. I, I, but I, it was it was nice. I I was I was starting to think of how similar this would be to actually what what that first day on Mars would feel like, and uh, it's it's hard to say, like you know. But I I think of all of my experiences, that would be that was the most similar to what it I've imagined it to feel like. I was in the spacesuit. Uh, all I see is red rock, uh, and and no one around me. Wow. Now, when when this mission to Mars is this um, is this a two way trip or is this a uh, one and done? There, there will. I've mentioned this before, but any one way trip spoken about for Mars travel is science fiction. Uh, there's something called Mars One, which was an effort that and two million people end up signing up for uh, to do a one way mission to Mars. It it's not going to happen. Uh, and unfortunately for people, there actually were finalists chosen that are very qualified 
uh, for something a mission like this. The problem is the funding source. Uh, they were trying to fund it as if it was a real, like the TV show Real World, like Real <laughs> World Miami, uh, where they would film people twenty four seven. A not enough money, and B horrible TV show idea because what's going to end up happening is it's going to be so low budget that they're not going to take into account people's safety like they would if it was a NASA or SpaceX mission. Uh, so it certainly will be a two-way mission, uh, potentially through NASA, potentially through SpaceX collaborating with NASA astronauts, uh, and then there's another potential that it will be a third private company, maybe Lockheed Martin or Boeing. Um, and so definitely a two-way mission, and it's long. As you mentioned earlier, it's uh, nine months each way, uh, but in order for the Earth and Moon, Earth and Mars to align, it ends, ends up being a 26-month mission. Uh, so definitely a, not a short mission at all. Yeah, and that's because you can't, you know, again, I, my chimp brain here, please jump in. But that's because, you know, the the alignment of where we are in the solar system, you, you don't want to burn all that fuel to, to run straight. You want to use the gravity to help you get there, correct? Yeah, exactly. But imagine, like, even even more severe. If you went on the exact worst day of the year, uh, what would end up happening is because Earth and Mars are in orbits, they're traveling around the sun in circle in, in, in ellipses. Uh, if you go on the exact worst day, if you try to leave from Earth, you essentially need to head to the opposite side of the sun. Uh, and so that, that doesn't become very uh, prosperous at all, as opposed to the time when Earth and Mars are in a line away from the sun. So essentially, though, the best day to, uh, to land on Mars is when you can draw a straight line from the sun to Mars and the Earth passes in between. Wow, so they really have that figured out. Like, okay, we got to leave on March third, you know, twenty thirty four or whatever it is. Exactly. We we yeah. There there are really simple charts you can see online that essentially pinpoint the day you would want to leave uh, for each two year cycle. Wow. Now, wh where are we as it relates to making this happen? Because it's 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 hard to kind of cut through the noise because I, I see a lot of marketing i see a lot of kind of social media posturing stuff and then you'll have people that are kind of there's the the arm of the media that's uh anti spacex tesla elon that just kind of tries to shit on everything that they do um where do you think realistically we we are like is this seem like 2034 2035 is a real deal or is this pushing out further yeah, and, the, and, and keep in mind, I'm probably one of the few people saying the 2030s. The, most people actually are saying the 2020s. Um, but I, I, I like to think of myself as a realist. Uh, and and I, yeah, I try to cut through as much of uh, the BS as I can. Uh, in, my prediction is that we, we have the ability to get back to the moon as a test flight in the mid-2020s. I think six, six years from now, five years from now, you will see us back on the moon for a short, short period of time. And then uh, another nine years later, and we will be on Mars. Uh, the vehicle used to get to the moon will be almost identical to the, us getting to Mars. Uh, and so I think where, whenever we do get to the moon, uh, let's say it is uh, 2024, 
2025, something like something in this time frame, uh, that plus 10 years will be for its first boost of Mar- on Mars. So if uh, if things don't end up going very well and it takes until 2030 for us to get back to the moon with the same Mars vehicle we'll use later, then I would say 10 years after that is when we will really will be on Mars, so 2040 in that case. But I, I would say considering the uh, uh, taking SpaceX as the main example here for their spaceship via, uh, Starship vehicle, uh, I think it's reasonable that we'll get to the moon in the mid-2020s, that by 20, 2034 or so we'll, we'll have the first, first boots on Mars. Well, wow. now we, we we stay away from, uh, you know, politics and everything like that here. But just as a broad strokes question from somebody who's who's in the in the industry, do you see a shift in, in the uh, I don't know if supports the right word or financial support or just the general importance being put on space? Has there been a shift, do you think? This, it's been. I'm curious what I would have found as my career of choice if I had lived, if I was born 10 years prior, because I, I can, yeah, I, I see from the inside, there's such a re-enlightenment in space. And, uh, and this generation is stoked on us trying to get back to the moon or eventually get to Mars or beyond, you know, it doesn't end there. Um, we were seeing more TV shows and more movies pop out of Hollywood in on this subject than we have since the Apollo era. Uh, and, uh, and that's just reminding us that we are kind of jumping into this new, new, uh, this new space race, but it is not an inter- international space race. Like it was back in the sixties. This is a domestic space race this time between private companies and uh, and on one you know on one side of this ring we have Elon Musk with SpaceX, and on the other side of this ring we have other contenders like uh, Jeff Bezos, right, the CEO of Amazon, uh, with his company Blue Origin. They're a little bit less heard of because they purposely they keep things quiet, but they're also making plenty of progress toward this. They're trying to get back to the moon, uh, but eventually, if they do well enough, they would also be joining the Mars camp, and. Uh, these private companies, though, don't work in a vacuum. They need government support, uh, namely NASA. Uh, and then outside the U.S. also you have ESA, the European Space Agency, and Japanese, JAXA. Um, but definitely very different from the 60s in that uh, these private companies are, are pulling the majority of the weight in terms of the design improvements. So so it's it's private industry wanting to to do it not so much that they need government support yeah uh, there's clearly a market for it i mean spacex now is is public information that they're worth in the upper 30 billions of dollars uh this is a very profitable company uh for the employees uh because it's a private company after all and for uh especially the uh the majority shareholders, namely Elon Musk and uh, and other uh, VPs, this has become a very valuable enterprise that will only continue to make them more and more money, and uh, and other private companies are able to follow suit. Have you had any interaction with Elon? Yeah, absolutely. I, I he shares his time between SpaceX and Tesla, uh, and when I 
when I worked for SpaceX, I would see him twice a week uh, in various capacities. Uh, the amount of uh, interaction one-on-one was minimal, uh, but uh, but I would certainly would um, you know share his airspace uh, at least a couple times each week. What's that? What's that like being around somebody like that? Y- you rule number one is to realize that he is your boss, uh, and uh, and. He's, but more than just your boss, it kind of goes back to the idea of like, uh, like pay scales uh, under logic. Uh, he's still someone that can be swayed, right? He, he's, he's, a, he's a brilliant man uh, and an amazing engineer and scientist and businessman. Um, but there's still a level of proof that, uh, that you can supply as an engineer t- uh, at SpaceX or for those engineers at Tesla to be able to push the company in, in one direction over the other uh, as long as it's based in logic and, and, and engineering judgment. And so that was a very powerful thing to be able to be working on uh, designs that have some sort of influence, small, but some influence on the future of uh, human longevity. I, I was able to put forth designs, analysis, and ultimately added 16 parts to the Crew Dragon vehicle, which will carry, uh, this is the first. This is the vehicle that's going to take. Uh, it's the first U.S. vehicle that will uh, take astronauts back to space uh, since the end of the shuttle era. And I have 16 parts that will wow. fly on every one of these vehicles, uh, and and be able to wrap up this uh, this design analysis and hand it over to my boss. For him to be able to give a meeting to Elon saying this is the new edition is very, very cool. It's very exciting for someone who just started their career to be able to have that kind of uh, power. Wow. Yeah. Talk about Cosmic Canoe. That's, uh, that's some powerful stuff there, man. That's some powerful stuff. Yeah, I think uh, it seems reasonable that we would use something relatively close but still uh, challenging like the moon to verify that the vehicle works. Uh, By sending the uh, Starship, let's say Starship through SpaceX is the vehicle we take to Mars. At some point, Starship needs to be able to prove that it works before it just goes to Mars on its first attempt. It would be silly to do this because you need two years to verify that it works. Uh, and so if we can do this uh, test in a few days, that saves a lot of time and energy. And it only takes about three to five days to get to the moon. Uh, that, I think that surprised a lot of people, by the way. Yeah, I thought when that took longer. At, I thought that was longer. When you look up at the night sky, the moon is not close, but it's actually not that far either. It It's about, uh, what is it, 250,000 uh, kilometers away it's uh it's you it's like going around the earth between like seven and ten times uh so if, you know you can imagine a international pilot for uh for singapore airlines going from uh singapore yeah, he can handle that ride right exactly <laughs> if you can handle that uh three times a day you know over the course of a pilot's maybe even a year, they probably have traveled the distance between here and the moon. Uh, 
And so that distance is not unachievable for humans in their in in modern life. Mars, however, is much much farther. That's uh, about one and a half times as far from here to the sun, uh, which is orders of magnitude or a couple orders of magnitude farther than here to the moon. Anyway, it's it's easier to get to the moon as a test uh, than it is just to go straight away to Mars. And so if we're able to send a vehicle that we would take to Mars and send to the moon, come back, and it lands, uh, and is able to see almost every phase of flight besides, of course, landing and taking off from Mars, uh, we've been able to prove 70% of the vehicle. And that's uh, a lot better than you know, going blind into the full Mars mission uh, and just uh, having to wait so long for it to really prove itself. Now, I guess that comes back to that idea of mitigating the risk and, and taking you know, you, you know how much risk is involved, so you're willing to take this. And we're, we're not going to know it's 100%, you know, we can't test it 100% of the way, but if we can get it, you know, 90%, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, I mean, and there's something called factors of safety. Uh, there's some sort of, you know, a factors of safety of one means you've designed for exactly the worst case scenario. Most parts of these vehicles are, are designed to a factor of safety of 1.25 and sometimes 1.4, meaning the, the rocket is 25 to 40% stronger uh, and, uh, and more thermally resistant uh, and corrosive resistant than we ever expect the environments to look like. So if uh, essentially the... The, Mars, the trip to Mars and back won't happen until there's something like a 99 or a 99.5% chance of success on computer. Uh, we need to know that in a 1 to 100 or 1 to 200 uh, 1 to 100 or 1 to 200 uh, chance that there'd be a failure. Otherwise, we'd have a success given a nominal mission. Uh, so essentially, when we... when NASA or SpaceX or anyone else makes the decision to send humans to Mars on that first time, the chance of, of success is the grand majority. That, at least on the computer, everything that we are able to understand as humans tells us that we're getting green. We're, we're going to go to Mars, stay there for the eight months, learn a lot of science, and come back alive. Um, but it won't happen until then. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize that that they factored all that extra percentage for power. I, I'll tell you, I hope they I hope they use that same uh, formula when they're building some of these elevators because I see that thirty two hundred pound weight limit, and I'm looking around at some of these people and I'm going, oh, I don't know, like, I'm not feeling too good about this. <laughs> I wish they had a scale before I walked in the door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There should be a little scale that tells you you have to get off. I'll tell you though, uh, elevators. Uh, so it's funny, like these factors of safety are actually some of the lowest uh, in the aerospace industry. The 1.25 and 1.4 I mentioned, that's pretty much exclusive to, to rockets because of weight. If you're any less, if you're any more generous with uh, strength, you're not going to get to Mars with the amount of fuel we need. You'd essentially have a, you, your requirement be all fuel fuel. would be, you, yeah, it'd be enormous. Uh, and it's already enormous, but you need to be even bigger. Uh, but things like roller coasters in your daily life at a theme park or, or a bridge uh, going from X Island to Y Island, these have factors of safety typically on the order of uh, two to four. Hmm. 
Good to know. Mm-hmm. Good. Love that. To know. Yeah, see, that's, <laughs> I always avoid those carny rides anyway, just to be safe. Um, yep. Because <laughs> those, I don't think they're factoring anything in there besides, uh, you know, where the no. outlet is. But and, uh, uh, fear. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so uh, so moving on here to our to our last section. Uh, and um, again, man, it's 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 an honor having somebody who's got such a breadth of uh, experience and, and information. Um, so the one thing that you said to me when when I reached out to you, we're trying to schedule this. You're like, yeah, I'd love to do it. Uh, only thing is, I'm I'm getting ready to go on to an expedition to Antarctica, and I'm going to be inaccessible for a few weeks. And I'm like, oh, just a casual. Just a casual jaunt to Antarctica, no problem, bro. Um, so, you know, what uh, what's up with that? <laughs> I uh, yeah, I know. I, I leave on Saturday, uh, so I in yeah, in six days from now, I will be in. A, I'll be starting my trip to Antarctica. Uh, I live in Los Angeles, and I'll be flying from here to Buenos Aires, Argentina. From Buenos Aires to Ushuaia, Argentina. That's the southern tip of, of the Americas. And I'll be picking up a, a scientific research boat uh, with uh, me and 500 of my new best friends. And we'll be taking uh, a two-day trek across the Drake's Passage. This is the most dangerous uh, uh, crossing of water pretty much in the world. Uh, and I'll be on this boat where I, I trust the captain's going to do it. He does this all the time, so I... but. Yeah, in any case, it's a great <laughs> passage. Uh, and then once we arrive in Antarctica after those two days, we will have uh, every day we'll wake up in the morning and take what are called Zodiacs. These are boats designed for Arctic waters and go ashore. And we will go on these uh, uh, scheduled hikes and uh, essentially to collect uh, organic matter deceased penguins, uh, sea life, uh, also ice samples. And then after the trek is over for the day, we'll go uh, take our Zodiac back to the boat. And there are laboratories on this uh, expedition boat where we can uh, use uh, microscopes and other scientific equipment to analyze what we've seen. And essentially through this, we uh, can compare against all the different islands around Antarctica and the mainland peninsula about microplastics in the water and uh, temperatures. And, and and how long are you going to be there for? Uh, the whole trek is two weeks, uh, and one week is of that is strictly in in Antarctica. Wow! And I guess I guess uh, you know one of the the kind of the common thread that I saw with all these things that you're doing to prepare yourself for for space travel is like hard commitments. Like if once you're flying, you know, I'm a drummer, right? And and as a drummer, when you're performing on stage with a band you can't stop and scratch your nose because the whole fucking show relies on you playing the drums so the bass player can play, so the singer can sing, et cetera, et cetera, so the people can dance, and the people can't dance can go buy drinks at the bar, and everybody's happy, right? So there's a lot of pressure there. It's like when you're flying a plane, you can't just like, oh, I got to take a dump. Hang on. There's no, there's not that. You know, EMT, same yeah. deal. Being in the scuba, same deal. Once you get on that plane and you're heading towards Argentina, I mean, you're done. There's no... It's not like, you know, when you go to the water park and you go up and, and then there's like, oh, this guy doesn't want to go down the slide and then you can just walk back down. You know what I mean? There's always like that one kid that didn't quite want to do it. There's no walking down the water slide. No. How do you wrap your head around getting into like, you know what you're getting into and you know the risk and, and, and it's 
not even factoring in the cold. Like that's the least of my worries, you know, like how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're describing also is some of that astronaut spirit, you know, mo- again, I, I mentioned this as for my job prospects. I'm fortunate that most people don't have that. Uh, what, what, you know, what people have described as maybe the right stuff is, is some of that, some of that ability to commit and and not complain, and uh, but more than that, more than that, actually, to be able to be patient and uh, and see the process through and enjoy it and actually be positive about it naturally. Uh, and this is something I'm looking forward to. I uh, and it's something I've wanted to do now for a few years. I knew after speaking with a couple of astronauts that you need some experience in a remote location, and Antarctica is the number one. Some people go to Antarctica. Some people go to the North Pole, like the Arctic. Uh, other people will uh, do some isolation training in the wilderness. Uh, this kind of thing. Uh, some people do it as part of their EMT uh, license, and they'll get the plus W, the wilderness EMT license, and so they'll get some sort of isolation experience this way. But Antarctic tends to be the uh, the preferred method, and. Once I figured that out, it became how can I get down there and uh, how can I make that time worthwhile? And uh, I, of course, have a busy schedule like the rest of us. And so how do you fit in these kind of things? But uh, two weeks is ideal for me. I'm able to take that time off uh, for my PhD to be able to do this uh, uh, research in an area that is different than my own research for my PhD. Uh, but still long enough and uh, challenging enough to where it will prove uh, on my NASA astronaut application that I can handle the elements and I can handle myself and I can be productive. Yeah, I guess that's nice. that's that's the ultimate uh, trial run there. And uh, you know, Dylan, as as a guy who's kind of grown up, you know, on the message boards, and you know, obviously, I'm very inquisitive. Antarctica is one of those places that there's always a lot of, you know, the conspiracies and everything that you hear about. So I need you to do me a favor. If you, if you come across any any secret Nazi bases or <laughs> hollow earth openings that lead to underground civilizations and there's any of that, give us the exclusive on that if you can. So if you come across any of that stuff, let us know. I'll come back on the podcast and share all the, like, yeah. In fact, actually, yes, it leads right to the North Pole. And it ends, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he saw, he's seen the ice wall, folks. <laughs> oh, man. So, so, uh, wrapping up here, last couple things I wanted to, uh, to talk to you about. So now social media, one of the things we, we talk about here, it's a common thread is the, is the kind of ebb and flow of social media and, and how we think it's kind of, it can be good. It can be bad. And for what you're doing, I see a great potential uh, for good, especially in kind of opening young minds up to the potential of being, you know, in in the stars and off the planet. So when I'm looking at your Instagram, doing my dive, man, you come across the aerospace field brings you to all the ladies. What's going on here, man? You keep, I, I see you getting to these, what are you talking about? There's a, you're meeting Kim Kardashian. You're meeting these models. What's uh? I, I, how does that happen, man? How, tell me about Kim. <laughs> okay. So I, as, as much as I love aerospace and my passion is 
you know, to become number one on Mars, a an Instagram profile with me in different astronaut suits and uh, and writing equations in my background, you know, only goes so far. I uh, I do plenty of that in my daily life anyway, uh, and so yeah, no, I I have. Uh, I mentioned that astronauts need to be generalists, right? They need to be jack of all trades, and and they should be able to be comfortable with new uh, new skills too. If someone were to say, like, actually, you know what? Uh, it turns out that archery is a really beneficial thing uh, for uh, prospective astronauts. They do a lot of that in space. That person would need to be comfortable to then commit themselves to archery and uh, and try to become as good at it as possible. So that sort of uh, flexibility is something I'm trying to show in my own social media. I I used to be a YouTube vlogger, for instance, and so I, I would capture my daily live uh, on YouTube, and uh, and then on Instagram I've shown that I I can run uh, for long distance. I'm an endurance runner. I, I ran my first marathon uh, four weeks ago and finished in the top eighth of all finishers, uh, and. Um, and then, I mean, of course, and then all the all the traveling. I I will be going to Antarctica. That'll be uh, on my social media next week. And uh, in January, I'm going to the Galapagos Islands. So these these are definitely things that I I'm excited to share with people. And part of the job description really is to be a science communicator. You need to be able to share with people, especially ones who don't see science a lot in their daily lives, and then also people who don't know that science should be part of their daily lives, namely children, uh, that science is cool and exciting. And there's a, there's a whole world out there to be discovered that we we don't know at all. We, we only know a, a tiny portion of it. But the cool thing is humans are smart enough and versatile enough to where it's in our reach to be multiplanetary. And we're at that, we're, we're living in a time right now where it we're just on that precipice. Uh, where 200 years from now, our great-great-great-grandchildren will think nothing of it when you hear about people saying, like, yeah, my, my buddy just went to Mars this week. Oh, man, I went to the Philippines instead. Like, these kind of things sound nuts right now, but are not too far away from where we're living. And, uh, and that ability to communicate these kind of things to people through your podcast, thank you for inviting me on to this, because there are plenty of people that need to know that maybe don't normally hear it that all these things are not only possible, but will in fact happen. Uh, and uh, they need people to help join the mission. And I think you're doing a great job. You're a great advocate for it. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's like I said, man, I think it's really cool what you're doing. Um, and, and, you know, hearing you hanging with the Logan Paul crowd, I could see maybe, you know, some of those uh, YouTube uh, antics up in space might be kind of might be kind of what the world needs right now. I'll tell you, like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of uh, Virgin Galactic. So Richard Branson, my, my yeah. So um, before SpaceX, I was a Virgin Galactic, uh, headed by Richard Branson. He uh, is a businessman with a great personality, very very outgoing guy. Uh, and uh, he he's someone that he and I had some cool interactions. Uh, another story for another time. But uh, uh, he has lots of uh, famous guests that are signed up to go on his vehicle to space to tr uh, just visit for ninety minutes. And um, some of those include Katy, uh, Katy Perry and Justin Bieber 
and uh, and and you you believe it? They 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 want to have a good time up there. They they're not there to <laughs> uh, to you know come up with the new theories for uniting uh, universal equations in space. They want to they want to go there to film their next music video. Yeah, and, let, me, uh, let me tell you something. They're going to be Bieber's going to be space banging. Okay, that's that's what he's going up there because everybody like when i started talking to my friends I'm like hey man i got this i got a prospective astronaut coming on because i wanted to gauge like you know what what some of my what do my boys want to know and it's all like hey so what's up with drinking pee hey how do you, can you bang in space hey how do you take a dump like there's there's a lot of basic life questions that are relatable because most people cannot relate like you said maybe to scuba diving or weightlessness or any of these things you can relate to like yeah well how do you pinch a loaf like you know what i mean like how does that work these are fascinating things too though that are they're worth discussing and the the answer the answers are actually pretty simple actually i i you don't have to tell us how to poop in space but but uh i mean if you want to i'd love to know but i'm just saying that these are the kind of things that uh that that kind of people people are wondering well the one thing i will share uh, i won't go into detail but it's fascinating. It's incredibly fascinating, and it actually has major ramifications for how we uh, will perpetuate the human species throughout space. Uh, space is actually a contraceptive. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, the way we uh, fertilize is largely based upon Earth's gravitational acceleration. So if huh. you take that away, it's actually difficult for humans to fertilize, and any species actually that's it's Earth-based. Uh, and so you have to mimic the Earth's gravity when you are trying to fertilize an egg, and uh, and so for that reason, space is a contraceptive. That's good. amazing. Also good to know. <laughs> that yes. is amazing, dude. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's why they want to do those near space flights. You know, like come on, babe, let's just you know take a trip in Branson's space plane, and we'll be safe. I mean, there are there are actually. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. There are companies right now, private companies, that whose goal are just for this, for uh, space tourism, uh, for um, uh, escorts. Wow! Really? Really? There, there are companies formed for this. So wait a minute. Hang on. So there's somewhere right now. There's an escort who's training to become a space escort. I mean, she she doesn't know it yet, but there's a, <laughs> you know there's some manager out there that absolutely will try. Wow, yeah, that makes total it's sense. Again, crazy. fifth, you know, watch the Fifth Element. I mean, uh, you know, or any of those space movies, there's, they're going to be balling in space. That's uh, wow, interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know because they talk about mining. You know, all the money that could be made from mining these asteroids and stuff. I know James Cameron has a has some sort of partnership. Uh, program with Jeff Bezos where they're talking about mining platinum, uh, you know, from asteroids and stuff for the fin- financial gains. So I'm sure there's some smart people thinking about where the money is up there. Exactly. Wow. Um, so last question for you, bro, is um, what advice would you give uh, to, to people listening to this, whether it's, you know, somebody working in an office, they don't really kind of know what they want to do, or maybe it's a young uh, aspiring astronaut like you are. Um, what advice would you have about uh, going after something that you know is difficult? Yeah, you, you got to envision your comfort zone as a sphere, a little bubble, right? Kind of around you. And you want to imagine yourself with a needle and the ability to p- 
poke at this sphere. It's not going to pop, but it'll grow a little bit every time you poke at it. And everything you do is outside your comfort zone is you poking at this sphere. And then over time, the sphere grows. And the next time you try to poke at it, you know, you have, you have to push harder to poke. And eventually, you have more and more things that are inside your comfort zone, more things that are inside this sphere. And what ends up happening for all of us is that the more we allow ourselves to be risk tolerant, the more risk tolerant you become the next time. And you can imagine, in my own case, if I had jumped into piloting, scuba diving, Russian learning, all in the same week, I wouldn't have gotten very far. It, it would have been overwhelming and too difficult. But if you take them in turn, suddenly the next thing becomes much more feasible. You know, Now I'm thinking about whether I want to become a jet pilot or not. Well, if I want to fly a helicopter. These are things I would never have considered previously, but now seem like they're in reach. And so to anyone out there who is considering something that they seem a little bit risky, you know, within reason, uh, give it a try. And, uh, and if you end up succeeding or finding that it's enjoyable, keep at it. And the next time you look at something that's, uh, that's risky, I guarantee you your previous self would have found it unattainable. But now you might actually give it a try. Couldn't have said it any Sweet better enough. myself. Dylan, thank you so much, man, for, for sharing so much information with us and our audience today. Tell everybody where where we can find you. Where can we keep up with you and in, uh, in your journey uh, to Mars? I appreciate that. Yeah, my my name's a little bit unique. I know they made uh, they, they enjoyed it a lot on the on Riffin' with Griffin. But uh, <laughs> Dylan, Dick, <laughs> Dylan Dickstein is my name. And uh and so everything, because I have a unique name, though, the positive side of that is all my socials are unique as well. Uh, at Dylan Dickstein. Easy as that. D-Y-L-A-N-D-I-C-K-S-T-E-I-N for Instagram, mainly. I keep up with that one mostly. But I also have a YouTube channel where I post about my flying, about my travels. So you, uh, next up, you'll be seeing about Antarctica and then the Galapagos Islands and, uh, and then Twitter as well. Well, nice. I'll tell you, brother, we're going to be glued to it, and uh, we'll have all that information uh, down below in the show notes. Dylan, safe travels, my brother, and uh, as always, we'll catch you down the road. Fantastic. Great speaking with you guys. You too. Thanks. <laughs>